What is surely a joy and delight to be with you this morning. I have to make a couple of comments as I get started. First, I'm very thankful to, to Pastor Daniel. Uh, you see, when he visited us a few weeks ago, uh, he came and he had to wear a suit. And I know it's difficult for him to do, but he had to wear a suit. And, and we, in, in honor of his coming, I think turned the temperature in the sanctuary up about 15 degrees. And so uh, if you've noticed that Daniel's lost about five pounds since then, uh, that's why. And so this morning I'm thankful because he's set a nice, cool, uh, comfortable atmosphere for me, uh, knowing that I would be wearing a suit uh, today. The second thing is, I believe here at Bethany Community, you guys are about physical fitness. And so I, I thought I would share with you uh, my latest physical fitness regimen. It, it might benefit you. So this is how I started. Uh, I started with these potato sacks, right? And, and my goal was to take five-pound potato sacks and hold them up like this for about a minute to two minutes. And then after I could master that with the five-pound potato sacks, I moved to 10-pound. And I did that, and I got to where I could hold those potato sacks for two minutes. And then I went to 20-pounders, and I got up to where I could hold 100-pound potato sacks like this for two minutes. And then when I got there, I was thinking to myself, what in the world am I going to do next? And so I decided, it was a big step, but I decided that I would put a potato in each sack. And then I strained and I got about a minute and a half. Uh, that's my idea of, of physical fitness. Uh, no, it is a joy to be, be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 13. And I'd ask you this morning, would you stand with me out of honor of God and, and his word as we read together? Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord! This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You may be seated. Join me as we pray together and ask the Lord to guide us to understand his word together. Father, we come to this uh, message from you this morning and ask that your spirit would prepare the soil of our hearts. Uh, Lord, this morning it is a, a difficult word, but it is a word filled with great joy if we would embrace it. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and that you would cause the, the words of my mouth to be clear in representing what you have revealed to us here in this story of Peter and the disciples. Lord, challenge us, convict us, and change us by your power and not by ours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I'm going to tell you four stories. The first story. There was a boy named John who in 1824 was born to a Scottish sock maker. This Scottish sock maker worked diligently from dawn till dusk, but this home uh, was one filled with children. John was the oldest of 11 children, five boys, six girls. And in this home, it was a home filled with a love for Jesus Christ. It was a home where John uh, learned about the Lord Jesus, learned to love him, and ultimately entrusted his life to Jesus Christ as the only Savior for his sins. And as John began to grow, a passion developed within him to become a missionary. And in those days, to become a missionary, you, you needed education, you needed training, particularly in Greek and Latin. So John set his way about school, but he ran into a problem. Uh, the problem's name was Mr. Smith. See, Mr. Smith liked to play favorites, and uh, John was not one of his favorites. It only took the second beating before John was done with school. He gave up school, helped his dad make socks at home, but still diligently studied Greek and Latin, hoping one day the Lord would provide for him to be a missionary. Eventually, John got a job with the government. It was a, a better job, gave him more time to focus on his studies. And the job involved surveying for some maps that, that they were making. During this job, he would have an hour lunch break. And while his fellow peers, uh, the boys, were off playing football on lunch break, John would sit under the cool shade of a tree and read. And this pattern caught the eye of his officials, the supervisors, and they pulled John aside and he said, John, why do you do that? Why do you sit under the tree? And, and he said, oh, I want to be a missionary. I want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm studying. I'm studying to that end. Uh, the official was impressed. And he came back to John and he said, here's what I'd like to offer to you. I'd like to offer you a promotion, a, a better job, and it's one that will allow the government to even pay for more training. But here's the condition. You must commit to taking this role for seven years. At that moment, there was a collision. There was a collision between 
what looked like God's provision, what looked from man's vantage point as the way to go and God's plan. You see, John had set in his heart that he didn't want to wait seven years. He didn't want to be committed that long. And so there was a, a crash between what God wanted and, and again, this, this job that looked like it would make uh, everything come together. Life often hits us with a collision between our plans and God's, God's plans, doesn't it? And it doesn't merely affect our career choices. It doesn't merely affect the big decisions in our lives. It hits us every day. In fact, it hits us every hour. Because the reality is, if you're like me, before my feet even hit the floor in the morning, I have an agenda for the day. I have plans and dreams of what I'd like to accomplish within the next 10 hours before I find myself back in bed resting just to do it all over again. And so each and every day, there are times in different ways in which our lives, our will for the day, runs smack into God's will, God's plan for the day. And how do we respond? When God calls us to love our wives sacrificially, do we give her the first fruits or do we give her the leftovers? When God calls us to faithfully shepherd our children, what happens when that conflicts with our will to get that home improvement project done today? This is a pivotal question that we face each and every day. Second story. It's about a guy named Dave. He was the son of a mechanical engineering professor. Uh, growing up, Dave had a, a love for the game of basketball. And so when it came time to choose a college, Dave uh, went to a place where he could further this affection for the b game of basketball, and he, and he played college basketball. And, and somehow, someway, he managed to graduate. You see, school wasn't really his top priority. And upon graduating, he wasn't really sure what he would do, but somehow, uh, perhaps through the connection with his father, he, he made his way into the mechanical engineering program and, and pursued a master's at the school where his father taught. And again, Dave wasn't the, the most devoted student, but uh, over time, he completed his thesis and graduated, and he entered into the working world. And, and still, uh, from, from our vantage point, this was not the guy that had the mark of success. And yet, despite his own efforts, uh, Dave was always in the right place at the right time. One promotion led to another, one job led to another, and eventually Dave came to Peoria, Illinois, where he came to be the plant manager of a facility in Morton. Little did Dave know, but uh, there was a change happening at Caterpillar, uh, a component that was really the bread and butter for this manufacturing company was about to see an astronomical increase in volume due to some changes in the design. So as Dave inherited this company, uh, product soared, uh, profitability was through the roof, and so the eyes of this nationwide company were on this new executive in Peoria, Illinois. As the success continued to mount, uh, these executives were convinced that, that Dave was the man, and, and what he had longed for and been working for all those years to, to reach a place at the top of the corporate ladder uh, seemed right within his grasp. But there's another side to that story. You see, meanwhile, uh, as he was here in Peoria, there was a neighbor, a very persistent neighbor, who would invite Dave and his wife to church. And in the background, they had their Sunday school class faithfully praying that Dave and his wife would come one day. Well, 
over time, they eventually said, yeah, we'll come. We'll, we'll try this one time. They came, and over time, they entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ. And a radical transformation began in Dave's heart and life. He began to see God calling him to seminary. But that conflict, that collision happened again because Dave's plan now was in direct conflict with God's plan. The officials offered him a, a place as a vice president in the company, a place with, uh, for sure, financial security. What would Dave do? Would he, would he take that position? Would he pursue this dream that he had had for such a long time, what he'd been working so hard for, what he really wanted? Or would he lay that aside and pursue what God wanted? You see, uh, the choice for you may not boil down to leaving your job and going to seminary. It, it may not be turning down a promotion. But again, day after day, we see a collision, a collision between our will, what we want to see happen, and what God wants. And what God desires and designs for our lives to bring us great joy, great satisfaction. Third story. This story involves the fourth child in a family of 12. They grew up on a farm in a very simple life. Uh, they grew up in a home where their father talked about Abraham and Isaac, where they talked about God on a daily basis and, and these promises that he had made to, to one day provide land, seed, and, and a blessing. A plan to, to take their family and make them as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You can imagine as, as a shepherd spending a lot of time in the field what these boys would think about. Uh, they would think about, boy, what, what will it be like when that happens? Could it happen to us? Uh, would we have chief seats uh, in, this, in this empire that, that God has promised to build from our family? They certainly thought about these things, and particularly for this, this fourth-born. Though he was fourth on the depth chart in one sense, uh, he had his eye, perhaps, on, on things that were greater. Then uh, the younger brother came home one day and, and snitched on them. Uh, this younger brother told their dad about some shenanigans they were pulling out in the field, and the brothers were a bit upset. They didn't like the idea of this little young, young buck stirring up the pot. Their dad liked this young buck. In fact, he made no attempt to hide it. He gave him a very beautiful coat. And as he gave him this beautiful coat, the brother's jealousy began to rise. Then one day as they were Gathering at the breakfast table, this younger brother, Joseph, ran in and said, I've got to tell you guys about this amazing dream I had last night. And guess what? You all are going to bow down to me. You can imagine how Judah felt in that moment. Seriously? Are you kidding me? We're going to bow down to you, Joseph? That's probably what Judah was thinking didn't take but a few more days, and Joseph came back to the breakfast table again. I've had another dream. And guess what? Not only you, but mom and dad are going to bow down and worship me. 
Oh, that was it. That was the final straw. This doesn't happen in a world where the oldest brother is king, where the oldest brother has his bullseye set on inheriting all that his father has accumulated. And Joseph declared that all of them would bow down and worship him. A little while later, the boys were back out in the fields. They were watching the sheep. They were watching the sheep in the distance. They saw Joseph coming. See, he didn't have to work out with them. His dad just sent him to keep tabs on how they were doing. So as Joseph is coming from a distance, the boys decide, this is our chance. We've got to eliminate this problem, this one who really stands in the path of, of our pursuit of glory, of our inheritance. Because if these crazy things he's saying are true, it means a very different life than we really want to live. So, as Joseph approaches, you know the story, they throw him in a well. And the plan was, in this well, he'd get no food, no water, and would probably die of thirst or, or hunger. And Reuben, he was the oldest brother, had some sense, right? He, he had in the back of his mind a plan that, that they would just let Joseph stay in that well for a little while. He'd teach him a good lesson, and, and after the brothers had gone, he'd, he'd deliver him out of the pit. But as Reuben was off taking care of business, and the other brothers were, were eating lunch, in the distance they, they saw a caravan, a, a Midianite caravan. The wheels in Judah's mind began to turn plan was hatched. I know what we need to do, Judah said, and he, he gathered his brothers around the lunch table, said, guys, this is what we need to do. If we let him die in this pit, what do we gain? We gain nothing, and we're going to bring the guilt of God on our own hands. So here's the deal. We're going to get him out of the pit, and we're going to sell him to those Midianite, Midianites. We can make some pocket change. We can get some financial benefit from this, and you know what? The blood's not on our hands. We didn't kill him. Well, the brothers listened to Judah. He was influential. And, and so, sure enough, Joseph was sold before Reuben could do anything to stop it. A few years later, Judah eventually left the, the field, started his own family. He met a woman in Canaan, married her. And he had three kids, Ur, Onan, Shelah. And these three kids, uh, the oldest, Ur, eventually married and... Uh, he was wicked. And so God, in his wickedness, determined to take his life to end the wickedness. And he died without leaving any offspring to his father. So Judah, as any God-fearing father would do, told the nextborn, Onan, you need to go in to your brother's wife. You need to, to preserve the family line. Onan wasn't too keen on that idea. That didn't fit his plan, his agenda. So, in his wickedness, God took his life. You see the train wreck that's coming for Judah? He's faithfully trying to obey God. He's trying to do what God wants, and he's lost two of his sons. In an agrarian world, that's a huge loss. He's down to one son, Shelah. What's he going to do? Is he going to obey? Is he going to give uh, Shelah to Tamar? Pondering that for a moment, Judah is still bent on pursuing his will. And so he refuses to give Shelah to, to Tamar. Sometime later, 
though he had promised once Shayla got older he'd give Tamar uh, this boy, he didn't live up to that promise. But it was a, a joyful time, an exciting time. He was going to shear the sheep, and uh, with a friend on the road, he saw this beautiful woman off to the side, and, and he decided to, to enjoy himself with her and um, left her some personal items because he hadn't collected the sheep yet uh, and promised he would bring a, a young goat as payment on his way back. And so he goes and he shears the sheep, and upon his return, he finds that she's gone. He can't find her, and Somewhat concerned about that, but um, then he gets home, home from this little getaway, to discover that Tamar, this daughter-in-law that should be living as a widow, is pregnant. Oh, did his anger boil that day. Who did this? How could you play the part of the harlot? In fact, he was so upset, he was ready to burn her at the stake. Then Tamar revealed the items of clothing that belonged to the man who had gotten her pregnant. Can you imagine the shock to Judah's soul when he recognized those were his very items? God wasn't done with Judah. Later on, there was severe famine, and, and the family was reunited as times were tough and they needed food. Judah uh, and his brothers went to Egypt. It was the only place around that had any kind of food, and so they went and, and bought some food. And in the process, Simeon got thrown in jail. He was the second born. And they came back to their dad with food, and, and it was good, but the, they knew the food wouldn't last. And sure enough, it didn't. And the boys needed to go back, and it would have been made crystal clear to them that if they were to return to Egypt, they had to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them. So, they talked to their father, Jacob. Said, Dad, we, we've got to take him. Their dad said, you know, I've already lost one son. I, I can't stomach losing another. If you take him and he doesn't come back, I'm done. I, I, I can't take it. But they convinced him the need was great, and so off to Egypt they went. And you know how the story goes, right? Joseph puts the cup in Benjamin's bag, has his men arrest them, and Benjamin's about to be thrown in jail. And here's where we see the grace of God alive in Judah's heart, because what does Judah do? Judah says, no, no, don't throw Benjamin in jail. Take me. Not him, take me, my life, for his life. He sets aside his will, his agenda, for greatness, so that his brother might live. Who knows what would happen in that Egyptian prison, but he was willing in that moment to lay down his life for his brother. That's what it looks like to sacrifice your agenda for God's agenda. It's a great story of reconciliation because in that moment, in Genesis it says, Joseph wept, Joseph broke down. That was, that was it, the the game that he had been playing and trying to teach and train his brothers a little bit about the mistakes they had made was over. Fourth story. It's the story of uh, a boy who grew to be a man and, and he loved to fish. I mean, this was the kind of guy that he would work all night uh, laboring on the lake. And he'd come in in the mornings working his fingers to the bone, cleaning, getting ready for the next day. And, and you could smell him. I mean, he had the, 
the love of the lake oozing from his pores. And as he grew up, uh, this, uh, this boy uh, grew up in a home that, that feared God. Uh, they loved God. They'd talk about him. And, and they'd talk about how God had promised one day to end the oppression that he saw all around him, to end the rule of Rome that had squelched and oppressed his people for so long. God had promised the Messiah, one who would come in, who would conquer, who would rule and reign and and restore Israel to a rightful place. All those nights sitting out in the boat waiting for the nets to come in, he thought about that and, and wondered what it might be like on that day. Then, one day, innocently enough, his younger brother Andrew comes and And Andrew says to him, Peter, you've got to come meet this guy. You've got to come meet this guy named Jesus. You see, Andrew already believed that that this was the Messiah. So Peter goes, and and that was his first encounter with Jesus. It wasn't long after that that Jesus came and said, Hey, Simon, let's go out in the boat. I, I want to teach the people. So Jesus taught from the boat with Simon. He taught and ultimately gave Peter a a lesson in fishing that at the worst time of the day he could have his greatest catch. And that was the start uh, of a life where Peter and uh, ultimately 11 other men would follow Jesus every waking moment. And they would follow him and, and watch Jesus as he healed the sick, as he cast out demons, he did mighty things and stood in the face of the Jewish religious leaders speaking like no rabbi had ever spoken before. One day, Peter even walked out on water to Jesus and the waves got a little crazy and he sank. Jesus rescued him. But he was clearly the spokesman. He was the voice of the twelve. And there was a time where Jesus took this enormous crowd, 5,000 or so folks, and, and he took five loaves and two fish, and he fed all these people. On the heels of the five loaves and the, the two fish, the people wanted to make him king on the spot. I mean, they wanted to crown him right there. But that wasn't the plan, and, and Jesus slipped away and walked across the lake to the other side. And in the midst of all this commotion, in the midst of of the constant conflict with the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus decided that he and his disciples needed a little staff retreat. They needed to get away, and so he took the twelve to a place called Caesarea Philippi. He took them to Caesarea Philippi, this uh, city that the Roman guards loved to to use as their place of R&R. You see, the scenery was gorgeous. There were these rock cliffs and and cut in the side of this huge rock cliff were various idols from Rome, the most favored ones. And so Jesus gathers his disciples with this setting in the background, and he asks them, in this world, in all that you've seen me do and say, who do men, who do people around you say that I am? See, he wanted to get to the heart of what they thought about him. And of course, they, they answer. Uh, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, after all, Herod, the, the ruler of Rome, he, he really was convinced that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Perhaps it was his guilty conscience. Others said uh, it's Elijah. 
thinking of the prophet Malachi, who had predicted one like Elijah that would come. There were some who, uh, perhaps influenced by the Maccabees and, and their record, felt that Jeremiah would come again. And so they said Jeremiah. At a minimum, the, the populace believed that he was at least a prophet. Suddenly Jesus turned and he looked directly in the eyes of the disciples. And he said, who do you say that I am? At that moment, Peter's impulsiveness couldn't be controlled. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Powerful declaration. And you can imagine the, the feeling that Peter had as, as Jesus said, Blessed, blessed are you, Peter. Simon, son of John, blessed are you. Because the populace didn't make this known to you. But my Father, my Father in heaven, he's the one who opened your eyes to see the reality of my work and who I am. Peter, in the midst of this, certainly uh, felt great. And, and Jesus goes on to promise that upon a, a confession like this, God would build his church. That upon faith, a uh, confession of, of Jesus as the only Savior, would become the foundation for all time. But it only took a few moments for the collision to happen. Because you see, up to that point, Jesus really hadn't communicated much about God's sovereign plan for him. And what it says here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, is that from that time, Jesus began to show them, he began to reveal to them God's divine mission. It's a mission that, that was crafted from eternity past. It was a mission with no plan B. And notice the character of this mission. He would go to Jerusalem. Uh, that makes sense. He would go to Jerusalem to suffer. Uh, certainly a, a Messiah who would come to rule and to reign would, would face some opposition. No problem. But here's where Peter lost it he would have to die. God's plan for the anointed Messiah was to die. And I believe that uh, perhaps, I don't know it for sure, Scripture doesn't tell us, but I believe at that point, Peter and the others checked out. When they heard that Messiah had to die, they didn't even hear the part about that he would be raised three days later. Because you see, a train wreck, a, a massive crash had occurred between Peter's plan and agenda his plan and agenda to be one of the 12 leaders that when Jesus came in, became king, and took over Rome, he would be a part of that. And that plan couldn't involve a Messiah who would suffer and die. It couldn't happen. It was inconceivable. How do I know that? <laughs> Look at how Peter responds. Uh, as Jesus concludes this first lesson about what he's going to do in the coming days, what does Peter do? He pulls Jesus aside. He tries to be discreet, but he begins to rebuke him. He censures him. Uh, the language here is strong. And he says, Far be it from you, Lord. Uh, it's uh, in some translations, May it never be. <laughs> Literally, it's, May God be merciful. In other words, I'm going to entreat God so that he will be merciful and you won't have to do this. 
And then it gets even stronger. You shall, this shall never happen to you. Never happen. doesn't get any stronger than that. Jesus patiently waited for Peter's rant to conclude, and, and he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You are a stumbling block to me. In a moment, in an instant, the solid rock had turned to a stumbling block. And a solid rock and a stumbling block are as far from one another as heaven is from earth. You see, to to make the confession that Peter made, God had to reveal that to him. It wasn't anything that he could get at a human level. But now Peter's mind was back to his plan, back to his agenda. (laughs) It was set on earth. And in turning from the ways of God to his own ways, Peter went from becoming a stumbling block. It's a powerful, powerful rebuke. And the disciples were perhaps watching this because in verse 24, Jesus turns to his disciples. He's now going to use uh, this encounter with Peter, this clash of Peter's will and God's divine mission. And here we find the mindset of a disciple because Jesus wants to make crystal clear that in the same way he, he has to command Peter to get out from in front of him and get behind him, He's going to use the very same language to say, if anyone wants to get behind me and follow me, this is what it'll look like. This is the mindset that it will require. And so the first mindset uh, is that discipleship demands self-denial. Look with me at verse 24. If anyone would come behind me, if anyone would get behind me, let him deny himself, deny himself. You see, discipleship demands self-denial, and and self-denial is a focus of the mind. He he says in verse 23, why, why did, did Jesus rebuke him this way? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 puts it this way, those who seek to live by the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who seek to live by the Spirit of God set their mind on the things of the Spirit of God. It's the focus of the minds. In Colossians 2.3 it says, set your mind on things above, not on things below. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this mindset that was in Christ Jesus. And what was that mindset? That who, though he existed in the form of God, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be clung to, to be held onto out of a dogged pursuit of his own will. No, he willingly, willingly laid his life down on the cross. To follow after Jesus, to be his disciple, requires, it demands self-denial. And, and this self-denial, it values obedience over expedience. See, that was part of Peter's problem. His problem was not that God hadn't clearly revealed what he needed to do. His problem wasn't that there was some vague notion of what this might look like. No, Jesus had explicitly told them he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and be raised. God's plan was laid out clearly. The problem for Peter is that was not an expedient plan. That was not a plan that would accomplish his purposes, his agendas, right here, right now. 
And so Peter chose expedience over obedience. And what it means to deny ourselves, to not think and set our minds on earthly things, it means that we must be willing to pursue obedience even when it hurts. Peter would learn this lesson later on in his life, wouldn't he? And, and I wonder today if oftentimes when it comes to living uh, according to what God has revealed about being a husband, living about out what God has revealed about being a wife, we settle for expedience over obedience. When it comes to taking the extra time to stop what we're doing and shepherd and, and use that teachable moment with our kids, we just blaze right past because expedience trumps obedience. And, and what Jesus calls us to do, what Jesus asks of us, is that we don't make that trade. When the train wreck, when the collision happens between our desire, our plan, and God's, we submit to his. Sometimes we might be tempted to think of self-denial as, as taking away our own comforts, our, our own devaluing our own lives, but that's not the meaning of what Jesus says when he says, deny yourself. Uh, this isn't some asceticism that says we, we show our love by all the crazy things that we do. No, uh, that is uh, a deception. Uh, notice that th that mindset is merely a sugarcoating for pride. It's a sugarcoating for pride that tries to make us look better than we truly are. No, self-denial is the recognition of how corrupt our hearts are. I don't know about you, but I have two children, and uh, they expose my own heart far more often than I'd care to admit. But in teaching them, I don't have to sit down with my kids and say, guys, we're going to have a lesson on being selfish today. We're going to march around the house and say, this is my toy, this is my toy, this is my cereal, this is what I want to watch, this is what I want to read. We don't have to do that, do we? See, the natural inclination of our heart is selfish. What Jesus is saying, we must repent, we must turn from a, a heart that is bent on self and turn to God and surrender our heart to him. That's self-denial. The second thing that discipleship demands is suffering. It demands suffering, and I, I quickly want to make just a few points. Look at verse 24. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross. First notice, this is deliberate. This suffering that Jesus is speaking about here, uh, taking up your cross, it doesn't involve uh, the diseases, the infirmities of life. It doesn't involve the random things that happen to us. What it involves is a deliberate act, and that leads to the second part, which is it's for the sake of Christ. This isn't suffering in general. Uh, this is suffering that comes directly as a result of Jesus, of our commitment and allegiance to Christ. Discipleship demands that. Third, discipleship demands stamina. The third uh, point that Jesus makes in talking to his followers is, you must follow me. And when he says you must follow me, uh, he doesn't mean follow me for a bit, follow me for just a few moments. No, he says, follow me. Follow me all the way. Love Psalm 119, 112. David talks about, I, I love your law, I, I love your word. And help me follow it to the very end. To the very end. Discipleship, following Jesus, is evaluated at the finish line. That's why in verse 27, Jesus is going to motivate them with the payment at his return. 
There's a reward coming. But will you wait for it? Will you have the endurance? You see, you can have a confession. In Matthew chapter 7, the disciples had heard Jesus teach this, that many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do all these amazing things? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Here, Jesus is calling his disciples to a life that is abandoned for his glory. And I want to to move now because Jesus recognizes this is a hard word. This is a difficult statement. This is a difficult road to hoe. So he gives three encouragements. Three encouragements in verses 25, 26, and 27. First, the first motivation that he gives is that following Christ brings wholeness. Following Christ brings wholeness. Notice verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, and notice, for my sake, will find it. There is a fullness of life that God desires for us. And we sacrifice, we give up the fullness of life that God desires when we choose our will over his. When we choose expedience over obedience. The second encouragement is that following Christ brings security. Following Christ brings security. Jesus puts it this way. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? In other words, you can have everything this world will offer you, but it's worthless when it comes to your soul. You see, the the temptation that Satan had posed to Jesus in the wilderness, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, if you forego the cross. You see, he wanted Jesus to buy into a plan that said, no cross, but a crown. What Jesus is pointing the disciples to is that there can be no crown without a cross. There has to be a cross in order to receive the crown. And our world does not get that. But that is where true security lies. You see, the disciples viewed glory as military might and political power. God define those the same things, glory, in terms of sacrificial laying down of one's life for another. Third motivation, following Christ brings great reward. I mentioned it earlier. Jesus says, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back with the angels. And you know what? At that time, we're going we're gonna to lay it out according to what you've done. That's a sobering word because for those who are apart from Christ, there will be judgment. God and his justice must punish sin. And, and those who do not get behind and follow Jesus, turn from their sin and turn completely to him, will perish forever in their sins. But those who follow, those who get behind and devote their lives to him, they will find great joy. They will find great reward. So what is it that distinguishes a solid rock from a stumbling block? In each of those four stories, that question rose to the surface. And it's here in this passage. Here's the difference between a solid rock and a stumbling block. The difference is a lifestyle marked by a radical commitment to sacrifice our plans, to sacrifice our agenda, to set our will not on what we want, 
but on what God wants so that we are willing and joyfully able and desirous to pursue the plan that God has for us. That's the difference. And it can turn on a dime. I want to come back and finish each of those four stories as we conclude. John, the first story, ultimately turned down that seven-year commitment, and his boss got so upset he fired him on the spot. But God had a plan for John. You see, God took him to an island in the New Hebrides, and ultimately he led virtually the entire island to Jesus Christ on this little island. In fact, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon would call this man the king of the cannibals for his life of unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ. He made a good choice when it came to the collision of his will and God's will. The second story was about a man named Dave, and I told you Dave lay at the crossroads of pursuing his lifelong ambition in the corporate sector to go to seminary. Dave chose to to leave a lucrative, uh, unbelievable job on the table and go to seminary, And, and even still today, he is in South Africa teaching and training pastors. He is, he is transforming the church in Africa one pulpit at a time. The third story, Judah. Judah is a great story of reconciliation, a great story of what sacrifice really means. Because though he botched it several times, in the end he understood what it meant to lay down his life so that his father and his family might come to Egypt, that God, in in the wisdom of his plan, would make a nation for himself. And lastly, here with Peter. You know, it's easy to to be hard on Peter, uh, particularly in this story. But I want to, to end with some words that Peter wrote, words that I think reflect what God did in his life in helping him see the difference between a solid rock and a stumbling block. Listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. It says, He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, this is a great statement of the gospel if christ had not gone to the cross we could never have a crown we would be dead in our sins and peter came to recognize the centrality of christ's sacrificial death on our behalf and god's glorious resurrection to vindicate that this work was complete as we prepare to to take communion i want to to challenge you to think about discipleship. Think about discipleship in terms of a solid rock or a stumbling block. As you face today and tomorrow and the the plans and agendas for your life, what will happen when your plans collide with God's? Will you be a solid rock, trusting in God's plan, pursuing it, denying yourself, or do you seek to, to barge through and pursue your plan. Such a joy that we can now uh, enjoy communion. And I just want to pray that, that God would move in our hearts to consider 
uh, this radical commitment to sacrifice our plans to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with grateful hearts, grateful hearts that you were bruised for our transgressions, that by our, uh, your wounds we have been healed. And as we celebrate, uh, Lord, this cup, as we celebrate the bread, this is a celebration that your Messiah was not um, one who sought the crown without the cross. Rather, your Messiah was one who joyfully, willingly said, not my will, but yours, who marched to the cross, who suffered, bled, and died so that we might be free from sin and forever live for you. Lord, as we, as we celebrate this together, move and stir in our hearts to want to follow you in this way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.